We're going to talk about something really fun, really exciting, really lighthearted. Um, I originally was thinking what, what I had on my heart initially for this morning was to talk about John 15 and um, abiding and Jesus saying, I'm the vine and you're the branches, abide in me and abide in my love and, and what does that look like? But in light of the events of last Friday, I thought, you know, it's kind of a significant thing that went on in Paris and it, it, it's good for us as a church and as the people of God to, to talk about these things and say, how do we... Um, well, here's the thing about this, and, and Sarah said this, as we found, we both heard about it at different times, but I heard her say to me a couple times, I don't even know how to process something like that. I don't even know how to make sense of it. I don't even know what to do with that. Any of you find yourself thinking something similar? That you just, you don't even know what to think, what to make of it, how to even, you just feel your heart, the gut wrench, right? The heart wrench in your head just says, what? How? What? And so I thought, why don't we take a little bit of time and talk about that, and then let's take some time and pray for the people of Paris and all that they're going through. And that's what's on my heart. Um, my understanding is, and the statistics are, are differing, but my understanding is that there were around 160 people killed, um, something like that. Is that right? and around 300-something, and growing. And what, it took place, there was an explosion outside of a soccer stadium. I remember seeing a video about that. There was, um, there was the concert, um, there was the restaurant, right? And there were a few other things. And, and we just think, how on earth? Like, what? How can we even do anything about So the thing that I wanted us to, to bring our attention to at first is the reason we say I don't even know how to process something like that, the reason I don't know how to make sense of something like that is because we're trying to make sense of something that is senseless. There, it's, we can't rationalize it because there's nothing rational about it. And when we talk about evil, it puts us in this really sticky situation because it's often easier just to kind of insulate ourselves. It's interesting that this building here actually um, has no windows. Well, I mean, those don't really count, right? But, but we often live, or it's easy to live kind of in this place where, and it's, it's often a temptation to kind of just want to insulate our hearts because to actually feel the weight of, of what that reality means is just heavy and, and painful. And often the temptation when we go to talk about evil is, is to maybe talk about it on the philosophical level. Well, why does evil exist and why does this happen? I mean, how often during suffering or times of crisis does the question go to why? Why would this happen? Why would people do this? But when have we ever really come across a good, valid, worthwhile answer to the why question? The very definition of trauma is something that you are unable to process. That's what makes something traumatic, is that you have no way of processing it. You have no frame through which to understand it or, or comprehend it. That's what makes something traumatic. If we were to go the philosophical route and talk about what went on in Paris and, and to talk about evil, you might hear some things like this, and I think these are helpful as far as they go. Um, St. Augustine once said, 
He said that evil has no existence in and of itself except as a privation or a lack of, of good. It's just the, the absence of good. C.S. Lewis said it this way, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And I came across this one recently, a guy named Cornelius Plantinga, who was the uh, president of a seminary in Michigan. He said, sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. And we can all understand that to be true, right, in our experience. Um, one of the ways that the Bible talks about sin and evil is, is actually this force of anti-creation, anti-life anti-relationship even. Um, it's interesting that we, we don't have time to go fully into this, but we often think of sin in terms of disobedience, right, or, or breaking of God's law. But isn't it fascinating that sin existed before law was ever given? And so sin is much more than the breaking of God's law. Sin is the breakdown of God's community. Sin is breakdown of relationships. Sin is breakdown of life. Um, uh, a church father named Athanasius, he referred to sin and death, and I thought this was so powerful, this, this picture. He said, sin and death are the process of decreation. Sin and death are the process of decreation. Now, I don't know about you, but if I kept that reality in my mind the next time I was faced with a temptation to do something that I know wasn't right, and I realized that I was contributing in a way to decreation, to the loss of life and vitality in myself or in another. I would definitely process that decision differently. But what's interesting is that when Scripture talks about evil, it never gives us a philosophical reason for the existence of evil, does it? Scripture never gives us a theological reason for the existence of evil. You can guess, you can put things together. But what does Scripture do? Scripture reveals to us Jesus as the living answer and response to the problem of evil. And by extension, us as the church. And that's what I wanted us to look at this morning. In the Gospel of Mark, if we know what we're looking for, let me give you an example. Mark chapter 4, verses 39 through 41. Let's read this together real quick. Jesus is on this boat with his disciples. And there's a storm and the disciples who are fishermen are freaking out. And it says that Jesus woke up and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, peace, be still. Then the wind ceased. And there was a dead calm. Can you imagine? And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? How many of you read that and you're like, Wow, that's pretty cool that Jesus has that power? That's pretty amazing. Or the story of Jesus walking on water. 
Any of you tried to walk on water before? Those of you that surf, it's kind of cheating a little bit, but similar idea. Try without your surfboard next time. See how that goes. Because we don't live in the first century, it's easy for us to look at Jesus' calming of the sea or the storm or walking on water as just a really cool thing that he did that shows his power over the natural world, right? But do you know how the disciples would have interpreted this event? You know what would have been in their mind? It was way beyond just this idea of, wow, Jesus has power over the natural realm. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, you know what they would have heard in the back of their mind? It'd be the equivalent of us hearing the soundtrack to Gladiator playing in the background as Jesus is walking on the water. It was this battle cry. It was this statement of conquering. This statement of power over the forces of evil. See, for the disciples, they understood that in the Old Testament you have places like Daniel chapter 2 where these monsters come up out of what? Out of the sea, out of the water. We have, they would have the story of the flood. The flood of just all of this water basically destroying life. For them, they equated the sea with chaos, with evil and the forces that warred against God's world. It was a symbol in real life of evil that was unseen. And so when they see Jesus walking on the water, he's saying, this has to submit itself to me. This evil, this force of anti-creation, of chaos, of destruction, it submits itself to me. That's a whole different thing, isn't it? Just, oh, look it. I can take a shortcut. There was so much more going on there. Jesus was making a statement about what he came to do. Let's look at another passage real quick that, that often gets um, either misunderstood, not understood, or maybe just read right over. Um, we're going to land on the last part of this passage, but this is uh, Mark chapter 3. Jesus has gone and he's healed a man with a withered hand in the middle of the synagogue on a Sabbath and everybody gets upset at him. And then he goes and he casts out demons. And then he goes and he calls his disciples and he comes back. And look at what happens. It says, Then he went home and the crowd came together again so that they could not even eat. I'm assuming that means the disciples. There were so many people they couldn't even get a snack. When his family heard it, they went out to restrain him for people were saying he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, now think about this for a minute. This is the Son of the living God, the Holy One, the One in whom there is no darkness at all, the One who was face to face with the Father in the Spirit. And look at what His children said about Him. They said, He has Beelzebul, and by the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. They're accusing the Son of God of using demonic powers to cast out demons. And he called them to him, and he spoke to them in parables, and he said, all right, smart guys, 
How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Definitely talking in parables, huh? How many of you read that and go, huh? What? How on earth does he go from talking about Beelzebul, which was just, uh, I guess it means the Lord of the Flies, right? And what do flies like to hang out on? <laughs> yeah. And he says, if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan is rising up against himself, he cannot stand. And then this weird statement, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property unless you first tie up the strong man. What on earth does that have to do with anything? Did you know that for them, their understanding of the ruler of the world at that time. Remember when Jesus is tempted and the devil brings him up on top of the mountains and on top of the temple and he says, if you bow down and worship me, I will give you all of this. It was actually his to give. Um, I don't think I put them in here, but... 2 Corinthians 4.4, it refers to Satan as the God of this age. The ruler of the house. And what Jesus is saying here, is He's saying, look it, if you want to go into the world and take back what Satan has done, the people that he's bound, what did Jesus spend most of His time doing? What kind of miracles did He do? Freeing people from the demonic? Bringing truth and replacing lies with truth? and bringing healing to the broken and those that needed restoring. His life was about setting the captives free. And what Jesus is talking about here, I believe, is what He was doing on the cross. He's saying this ruler of the world, this God of this age that has these people bound up, this force of evil that has been unleashed on the world, I'm actually binding that force of evil up. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the cross, the cross is not just some example to follow or some event to reflect on, but actually an achievement against the forces of evil that we are called to work out and implement throughout the world. Can I say that again? Jesus is saying that the cross, that His death on the cross is not just an example to be followed, it's not just an event to reflect on. It's actually an achievement to be implemented throughout the world. Jesus says, on the cross, I bound up the strong man, the evil one, the one that had the power of this world, the power of oppression, that would cause sickness and death and broken relationships. He says, I am binding that power up. Now you, church, you disciples, go into the house and take back what he has taken from us.
You wanna hear something fun that I like to do to students at YWAM? Uh, if you haven't learned this about me yet, I like to kind of mess with people's heads and get reactions and make them go, what did he just say? And kind of, I like to confuse people just because I have nothing better to do with my time. Um, so I often get asked to go to YWAM training groups and talk about missions. And you would expect that, um, at least they're, they're expecting that when we talk about missions, there's gonna be a lot of guilt, right? Um, they're going to be guilted into moving somewhere and, and doing something. There's going to be a lot of talk about people going to hell. And so if you're going to talk about missions, you have to talk about how it's our job to go and save people from hell. Um, I wish I was kidding, but that's really kind of the expectation. And so this is what I like to do when I teach on missions. I introduce the week by saying that every day, all around the world, literally this very day, there are people dying and going to hell. And they're like, okay, good, here comes the guilt. Here comes the <laughs> Here's what we've been waiting for. And then I say, these people that are dying and going to hell, God is absolutely delighted by that. God is absolutely pleased. And then they start, what? Wait, 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 I, I was following you and now I'm not. And then I go on to explain to them that the people I'm talking about, the people that are dying and going to hell, are people that are dying to things like apathy and selfishness and comfort and materialism and living for themselves. And they're going to hell where it exists on earth to replace it with the kingdom of heaven. I tell them I'm talking about the church. That actually what Jesus is saying is that hell was not just a future reality for some, but hell was a current reality, the place where God's will, God's dreams were not happening. Just in the same way that heaven is the place where what God wants is actually happening and that can start now, hell is the place where these creation, these forces that war against God are having their way, places of injustice and oppression and brokenness. And Jesus says, no, don't just worry about that as something that some people are going to go to someday because that's not the point. The point is, I want the Father's kingdom to come today on earth as it is in heaven. He says in that same prayer, deliver us from evil. And he doesn't just mean someday, somewhere, sometime. Literally what Jesus is saying is, look it, I want you to go to hell. He's saying, I want you to go to hell and replace it with the kingdom of heaven. I want your light and your love to go and bring what isn't there. And that's what Jesus started on the cross. See, what, what this brings us into is this... What's going on here? This brings us into this tension that the vineyard talks about really well. It's this idea that the already and the not yet, that Jesus has already won this battle. Now it's our job to go and put it into practice. I'm not a historian. I don't know much about World War II, but if I say the term D-Day, what does that mean to some of you? Was D-Day the, the final battle in World War II? It was what? The turning point. And I think that what Jesus is saying is that the cross is the D-Day of the story of the world. He's saying there's something that happened on this day and it didn't make everything perfect yet. 
It didn't completely rid the world of sin and evil and injustice yet. But it was the turning point. The tides had turned. The momentum had shifted. And what we experience in things like on Friday is when that momentum works against us once again and we say, wait a minute, it's a reminder of who we're called to be as the church. He says, go into that house where people are stolen, where people are broken, people are confused, people are lost. And go and replace that with light and love and hope and joy and peace and shalom. Is that a different way of viewing the cross for any of you? Good. We actually see this, and, and some of you might be saying, well, is there a verse that says that? No. But if you want to see where Scripture shows us this, read the Gospel of Mark. Particularly read chapters 15 and 16. But what we see is Jesus' full-on confrontation with evil. Think about this. Think about the story of Jesus' death. What is the thing that triggers the death of Jesus? It says in Scripture that Satan rose up within Judas' heart and incited him to betray Jesus. So Jesus is faced with the evil of one of his closest friends, his closest disciples. Betrays him. And then he moves on and he's tried unjustly by the religious. So the religious system of the day. And all the evil that was embedded in that. And then the political, Pilate, and his, his um, what do we call it, trial before Pilate. We have all these different forces of evil confronting Jesus head on. And Jesus steps, it's like He steps in front of the train of evil and lets it do its worst to Him. 1 John 3, it actually says it this way. It says, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Past him. And so Mark shows us this picture of Jesus stepping in front of the weight, the freight, the, the fullness of evil. And what does He do? Does he fight evil with evil? Does he call down the 72,000 battalions of angels? Does he fight fire with fire? He absorbs it into himself. And in ways that I can't explain to you logically because it transcends understanding, he absorbs the full weight of evil into himself. And now here's the question. Remember we talked before about when Jesus touched the lepers. What happened? Did the leprosy get transferred to Jesus or did life get transferred and wholeness get transferred to the lepers? When light and darkness collide, when Larry comes, we didn't tell Larry, hey Larry, can you turn off the dark? When the lights come back on, we're like, Larry, will you go turn off the dark for us? We say, Larry, will you turn on the light? What happens as soon as that switch is flipped? What happens to the darkness? Does the darkness even have a chance? It has no choice. And I think that's what's happening on the cross in ways that we can't really explain or make sense of, but Jesus absorbs all this evil into Himself and that evil has no chance when it's swallowed up in life. How do we know that? We know that from the resurrection a few days later. And death says, ouch, I'm done, I've lost, I'm defeated. Jesus says, told you so.
There's so much that I could say, and I want to make sure that we have a few minutes to pray, but um, I wanted to just, I'll let, you, I'll let you think about that for a little bit, but I, I want us to see the cross in a different way, and I hope that, um, I know I haven't done much justice to it, but I'm hoping that you can see a little bit of what I'm trying to say, that the way Jesus shows us, look, at, I'm not going to give you some theological answer to the problem of evil. I'm not going to give you some philosophical answer. I'm going to become the response to the problem of evil in my very life and sacrifice itself. And that's what life in the Spirit does, is it empowers us to do that same thing. And where I want to go next, I think, is a little bit tricky. And it's, it's not as tricky for me. Um, it's not as tricky for you. I think it's tricky for God. Is it possible for something to be tricky for God? <laughs> yeah. And, and this is what I mean. As soon as we talk about evil, and we talk about enemies, and we talk about oppression and oppressors and the oppressed, when we talk about it on a human level, it's, it's pretty clear-cut, wouldn't you say? I mean, how easy is it for us to look at those terrorists who did those things and just say, well, those are evil people doing evil things? It's pretty black and white in our minds, isn't it? At least on like a kind of gut level response, reaction. How many of you thought that at some point? Just like, how could those people be so evil? So blinded? And imagine if... Um, okay, so, so Brett and Taylor, I guess it was Taylor and, and a couple others of you, I think it was Greg or somebody... On their way in, they saw Zachary, um, my six-year-old son, running home. And he was just kind of frolicking free in the rain. And, but imagine if Zachary, on his way home, one of you see him, and you see this older kid, like this 14, 15-year-old kid, see Zach, and just, for whatever reason you don't know, just runs out of his front yard and runs and tackles Zachary, my, seven, my six-year-old, and starts beating him up. What would you do? Especially if you know Zach, would you want to? <laughs> How many of you would, would get Zach's back, so to speak? Right? I hope you would. But wouldn't it be easy to just say, oh, well, Zach was getting beat up by that bully, right? This nameless, faceless bully. But think about this for a minute. And those of you that are parents, you understand this. How much trickier is it? What if the person that was beating up Zach on the side of the road was, Josh's, or was Zach's big brother, Joshua? Now, is that realistic, and has that happened? <laughs> They're brothers. But it's the same event, right? It's, it's somebody bigger picking on somebody smaller. But if I saw that do I just go and grab Josh by the neck and start, you know, do I, would I have to respond to that a little differently? If the oppressor is also my child? See how this gets tricky?
Because we read Jesus' statements like, I tell you the truth, it's easy for you to love those that love you, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And, and for us, we're like, uh, okay, I'll try. <laughs> you see why this is a loaded thing? This is such a loaded thing. Because that's a response, right? That doesn't include blank. And so here's the really, really tricky part. If we were to back up as the church, if we are called to be the people of God, the representatives of God into the world, the question we have to ask is, how does God process something like this? Now I can see, oh, look at you. I wish you could see your faces right now. I told you this was tricky. <laughs> Drums. So this is the thing that I don't want to say, but I can't not say. What was Jesus' response from the cross when faced with the fullness of evil directed personally, individually, at Him, the living God? Jesus, in some power and grace that I will never comprehend in this life, looks out over the ones that have pierced His very hands and side and ankles, and He looks over them and He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And the thing that's tricky about Jesus' statement, it's easy for those to love those that love you, but I tell you, love your enemies. The thing for Jesus is that even His worst enemies are still His children. See, there are scriptures that say before you are enemies of God, but the thing that we often think is that that means enemies two ways. But have you ever had somebody not like you that you actually didn't have a problem with? Have you ever had somebody like you or dislike you that you actually didn't mind? There's nothing in you that didn't like you? Anybody getting mad right now? Anybody confused? Anybody perplexed? at what could absolutely possess Jesus to be able to look upon those that did that to him and express forgiveness? See, the thing, what's the point of forgiveness? The thing that forgiveness does is it actually, if, you, if our sins have been forgiven, you know what that does? That releases us from the power of sin. When you've been forgiven something, it releases you from the power of that thing. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm releasing you from the power of sin. I'm releasing you from the power of death. Now will you live like it? I'm even going to send my spirit to help you do it. There was a, a pastor. He was telling a, uh, I guess he was teaching on forgiveness. I don't know what the context was necessarily. That's my assumption. But all I remember from the story was that when... 
this lady, you know, they, some churches, normal churches, since we aren't a normal church, uh, normal churches, the pastor lines up outside and they all walk and kind of shake hands and give a quick commentary on the sermon. And I'm glad we don't do that. There's reasons why we don't do that. Um, no, but so this lady walks by the pastor and, and she says, so thank you for the talk on forgiveness. I have a question for you. And she says, and the pastor knew some of her story, and, and she said, so my ex-husband that abused me, do I have to forgive him? Does Jesus expect me to forgive him? Now, if you're that pastor, what are you thinking? <laughs> you're thinking, are you really asking me this? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think I just blacked out. Oh, my elders are calling me. And so the pastor, he had to think about that, and he said, well, he said, I can't tell you that I would be able to do that. But I do know what Jesus said. And Jesus said, forgive others. Love your enemies and forgive them. You know what the lady said? Okay, good. I was just making sure. Why? Because her heart knew that was the response of Jesus, no matter how hard she knew it would be in real life. She knew that that could be the only way to move a relationship forward, is to not fight fire with fire. Isn't that what Martin Luther King said? You can't overcome violence with violence. You can't overcome hate with hate. You can't fight fire with fire. You can only overcome hate with love. Now it's super different for me to stand up here and try to talk about this like this is something that I can do versus the reality. Now, now some of you know some of our background and I, I don't want to always bring it back to this, but, but sometimes you have to, you just process things through the experience you have, right? But it was so absolutely beautiful. I remember seeing the forgiveness that was expressed. I told you that um, when those shootings happened in Colorado Springs um, in the early 2000s, uh, Colorado Springs and in Denver, and that was at our YWAM training campus, and this young man came in and shot and killed two of our friends and injured two others. And being able to watch firsthand the forgiveness expressed from the families of the ones that had lost a daughter and a son Express that forgiveness to the ones whose son had taken the lives of their daughter and son. There was an experience of the peace and power and presence of God, like no fighting, no argument, no anger could ever contain. You see why I said this is really tricky to talk about? Because the thing we need to try to wrap our hearts around, even though we can't wrap our minds around, is, God, how do you see this situation? How do you want us to pray? Not how does our gut level reaction incite us to pray, but, Father, how do you want us to pray? How do you want us to respond? And the words of Donald Miller, and it's interesting, Ephesians chapter 6, it says, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, against humanity, but we wrestle against powers and principalities and powers of the air. We wrestle against systems of darkness. And 
I think it's important what Donald Miller once said. He said that in Christianity, we often get to the point where we actually shoot the hostages instead of shooting the enemy. But in war, you don't shoot the hostages. You shoot the enemy, right? Have I given us anything to think about? Doesn't it suck? On a certain level, but isn't it beautiful and compelling and and so right on another level? Now I know that I'm probably, I've probably underwhelmed you in terms of talking about evil and the problem of evil, but the, the thing that, that I hope is clear is that the point really isn't to talk about evil because it's not something we're going to be able to figure out. The problem isn't to try to come to a, an answer about it. The thing is, how do we love it away? So let me, I'm going to pull back for a minute. We have a couple minutes, and before we pray, I just want to create some space for you guys to process and, and to express what's on your heart, even if it totally disagrees with what I'm saying. Or um, I just want to create some space that we could actually dialogue because there's, this was a loaded event that happened on Friday. And I don't claim to have answers, but I know that even expressing is significant. So let's hear from a couple people before we pray. Yeah, Larry. Yeah, thank you, Pamela. That, that reminds me of, and, and I don't know... See, it's interesting, and we don't have time to go fully into this, but, but we've been given in the Western world, generally speaking, an image of a God that's distant, that's removed, that doesn't care, that's unaffected, that's unaffectable. But yet, what Scripture shows us is the complete opposite. And I was actually, it's funny that I came across this, but I, um, I remember around a year ago at this time, actually, um, one of the quotes that I shared with you uh, from a guy named Paul Young, I think, is, is very appropriate again now. And, we were talking about the story in, in Luke 11 um, where it says Jesus, it's actually in John, uh, John 10, Jesus wept. It's just that, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible. And, and I remember hearing Paul say one time, we don't weep. No, Jesus didn't weep because he was human. Because that's often what we can say. Well, well the Father wouldn't weep, but Jesus had human emotions. And so it's easy for us to kind of write it off or explain it that way, right? But, but Paul said, Jesus didn't weep because he was human, but we humans weep because we're made in the image of God. And just flipping that around and letting ourselves actually be confronted by the brokenness, the suffering that God allows God's self to experience, Father, Son, and Spirit, because of the destruction that we bring upon ourselves as God's children. And... I mean, that, that brings us into a, you know, we could, that could open up a huge can of conversation that we would have. It's interesting that we could actually count how many there are in like 30, 30 seconds this morning. But um, there would be as many strong, emotionally loaded opinions as there are bodies in this room right now. Um, but I think the thing we need to keep in mind is that we're so far removed from that reality because we live in the Western world where persecution for our faith is not in our framework. We don't experience that. Um, I came semi-close to it in China just having conversations with people that had been interrogated and people that knew people that had been killed for their faith. Um, but I think it's, it's, 
easier for us to just kind of, you know, again, talk, and not that you're trying to do this, but, but it'd be easy for us to just have conversations around it. And I think the best response is just to take time in prayer and say, Father, would you show us your heart? In light of the New Testament reality that the early church actually spread, the thing that catalyzed the movement of the early church was persecution, was martyrdom, was them being killed by the Romans. And that came in and that actually catalyzed their spreading, their dispersing, so that we have what we have today. And so I think the prayer for me, I'll tell you what my personal prayer is going to be. Holy Spirit, you are the redeeming genius. You can take the most horrific, can I say bullshit? I just did, didn't I? <laughs> I take it back, but we, <laughs> we, we don't have other words, do we? Again, it's like, like what word is strong enough? What word is strong enough to, to convey the despicable, destruction, horrific, tragedy, trauma? For, just forget I said that word if that's still, if you're hung up on that. But, but what other word do we have to talk about this? And, and the thing, this is the thing that, that gets me fired up is if the cross teaches us anything, the cross teaches us that the Holy Spirit can take the most profound, most utter, most horrific, most destructive trauma, death, all of the worst that evil can do, and turn it into the most beautiful thing ever. Because why are you sitting in this room right now? Because the Holy Spirit took something like you're describing and took that rejection, that death, and brought so much more life than death could ever try to squelch. If that doesn't get you fired up, if that doesn't give you some hope, I don't know what will. Are we having church yet? This is a, remind me your name, I'm sorry, Carrie. Yeah. Welcome to the conversation, welcome to Coastland. <laughs> but it's the same dynamic, just, you know, you know. And I think, and you brought up something really important, and I think this is something I, I personally am going to be praying, and it goes back to what I said about Ephesians 6, that we don't battle against or wrestle with flesh and blood, but against angels and powers and principalities, and the thing we need to remember is that there is a place for battle. There is a place for warfare. There is a reality that there is an enemy. It's just we need to make sure to not get the enemy confused, the ultimate enemy. And um, it's funny how, especially in postmodern Christianity, it's easy to kind of be anti-military language. You know, any of you grow up singing that song, I'm in the Lord's army, right? How would you feel if we, if we came in, if you came in this morning and we sang that song, you'd be like, okay, um, really? Or did they realize we're in 2015? And you know what I mean? But it, it's just a different day. It's a different age. But, but the problem with being, having that kind of anti-militaristic um, sense, it's the heart behind it is good, but the thing is it can dull the edge that we need to remember that what did Jesus go around doing? flinging demons out of people's lives. It, Jesus was militant in the most loving way ever. And I think that's the thing that we need. There is a place for battle. There is a place for, for power, for strength. But it looks like love. And we need to make sure that it's directed towards the true enemy. So I'm going to just keep on going if we don't turn around and pray. <laughs> um, but I think this is super important for us to talk about. But it's more important for us to take some time and just listen to the heart of God and, and pray that the enemy would not have his way. So, Susan, you get a... And that's a super good point. And my response to that would be, 
I hope you don't hear me saying that we're going to go into some battle, that this is the new Coastlands mission and battle cry, is to, is to pray that ISIS would be supplanted. The point for this morning, the thing that we always need to bring ourselves back to is what is the heart of God for the situation and for our church, and where does it meet? And so that's what I think we're going to take a few minutes to do this morning and say, all right, Father, how do you understand this? What do you want to say about this so that we may know you better? And what is our role in the middle of Morro Bay, California, to respond to this thing that obviously devastates your heart? So I don't know what will come out for you for that. I don't, you know what I mean? I can't answer that, but it's a very important question. So are you jumping back there to say something, or did I say it? And I want to say that anger, please don't hear me when I talk about forgiveness. Don't hear me saying that there's no place for anger and that anger is inappropriate or that being devastated is inappropriate. There's the path to forgiveness often goes through and contains much anger. And it's a very healthy and needed anger. That often if there's forgiveness and there isn't anger when there should be, that's not true forgiveness. You know what I mean? Because we haven't actually dealt with the, the weight of what's been happening. And so don't feel, don't let that anger, you know, feel like you need to push that aside or suppress that. But ask God what that anger is supposed to do and what that's supposed to be channeled towards. So um, we could... <laughs> yeah. Let's do this. It, I, I think it's so important and so valuable that we can have kind of air things out, you know what I mean, and have these conversations. And it's just as important that we take time and kind of send them back to God and the emotions and the processing. And, and even there is a place in prayer of, of actually holding people far away before the Father, Son, and Spirit and, and participating in what God's feeling and stepping into that. It transforms us and it transforms situations. And so let's, let's just take a few minutes. If you, it's 11.45, so if you absolutely have to go um, play in the rain or, or whatever you might need to do, um, and we'll have to go get the kids in a few minutes, but let's, let's get in groups of three or four. Um, so
So yeah, just, just look around you. Let's move around for a couple minutes. Get in groups of three or four. And I don't want to guide too much how we pray, but I, just want, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to take a minute or two and just say, God, what would you say to me? Would you show me your heart? And then pray according to that. Um,